Welcome to the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast, in which we bring you conversations we've had during our monthly speaker series held at Bloomberg's global headquarters in New York City. Cornell Tech at Bloomberg brings together students from Cornell Tech, Bloomberg employees, and members of New York's technology community to hear from entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders, luminaries from the global technology sector. Navigating complex cultures to drive innovation within big companies is challenging and ripe with opportunity, if done correctly. Over the past 25 years, Bradley Horowitz, now VP of Product Management at Google, and Chad Dickerson, former CEO of Etsy, have led companies from startup stage to IPO and worked at some of the most recognizable tech companies around. They know firsthand the importance of innovating inside large organizations. I'm Scarlett Fu of Bloomberg News, and in this episode, my co-anchor Caroline Hyde of Bloomberg Television speaks with Bradley and Chad about the risks, failures, and successes behind game-changing innovation and their Big Coast Studio course at Cornell Tech, which is teaching students to build products in complex environments at scale. And I'm very pleased to have both Chad and Bradley here. Just to give you some background in terms of how they've worked together. They work together, they now lecture together, they are both been at some point chief technology officers, both been CTOs, both helped drive large corporate incubators. One was the CEO of a pretty well-known company, of course, Etsy. You, of course, Bradley, were a founder to start off your career. Both have been investing time in growing the next generation of business leader and entrepreneur. Bradley, of course, very active angel investor. We've got Chad, who is out there with Reboot, educating, training, helping uh, talk to career coach, basically, the next generation of business leader. They've known each other for 15 years. They get on really well. So this is going to be a really nice, intimate discussion. But I want you to think about your questions going forward. You're going to get 20 minutes at the end to ask them anything you want. So please do get them thinking. But first of all, I want to talk about what is Big Co Studio. This is the name of what you guys came up with, the new point of learning, a new structure, really, of talking about innovation. Chad, can you talk to us about why you thought Big Co Studio was needed at Cornell? Yeah, so I was uh, sitting around one day talking with Dan Huttenlocker, who's the dean uh, of Cornell Tech. And Cornell Tech has been around for several years now, even though the campus just opened up fairly recently. And Dan and I were talking about how there's so much like content and material and podcasts about like how to you know pitch a startup and fund a startup and grow a startup. And even Cornell Tech in their studio program, which really emphasizes hands-on learning and like doing real things, had a track called Startup Studio. But there was no track for building things in larger companies. Um, and in fact, you know, schools like Cornell Tech, uh, when people graduate from Cornell Tech with their degrees, they tend to go work for big co's. So <laughs> we decided that it would make a lot of sense to expand the studio program and add another track called Big Co Studio, um, and really bring out like some of the secrets and such that we've learned, Bradley and I've learned over the years, and, and kind of put those out because. There aren't really any good books about like how to pitch the CEO and like you know legends of you know pitch decks and like you can look at the Airbnb pitch deck, but you can't see the pitch deck when you know Sally from Acme Corporation went into a meeting and won the day. Like that's all a mystery. So we wanted to demystify that. So peel back the layers there. And yeah. Bradley, of course, you guys met originally in Yahoo's incubator, right? Brickhouse as it was known. You've gone on to work, of course, building the new incubator that's coming out of Google. And can you talk to us a little bit about how this is just one part of the teaching, how right. incubators can help foster innovation? How are you currently achieving that at Google with what is Area 120? Well, I think that's a really important point is that incubators, accelerators, and brick houses was one of the 10 lectures that we gave. And Google has always been a really innovative company. If you look at things like 20% time, right up to Google X, now rebranded as X. We've always thought about how do we think about the next generation of technology and not just be a one-trick pony. And that's been baked into the processes and thinking of Google. So Area 120 is yet another uh, tool for us. Um, if you look at things like M&A, which was actually another lecture, we're a very acquisitive company. We've done you know dozens of acquisitions per year, every year of our existence. And so this was yet another opportunity for us to innovate. And the basic premise being that we had gotten very practiced and very experienced at building products for billions. And that sounds amazing. And it is amazing. 
when we build a product, it's infinitely scalable and translated into 60 languages and very robust, it never goes down. All of those sort of things are fantastic for products that need to be that robust. But the trade-off and the consequence of building for billions is you get weak at building for millions. And by that, I mean products that are more experimental, may or may not work, don't need to be bulletproofed and sort of you know, tightened up because we're still learning with them. And so Area 120 was created as a sort of a safe place to explore those kinds of ideas without the tax of you know, our scale. So how can we sort of take everything that is great about Google, our infrastructure, our talent, our opportunities, but uh, translate it to uh, a smaller startup-like scale so that people can move fast, make decisions in a very autonomous way. Is a lot of it, Chad, about teaching risk-taking within big companies as it seems to be? Or before we delve into, you know, talk about M&A there as well and some of the other parts that you're teaching, mm -hmm. but how hard is it to ensure that risk-taking, that desire to fulfill the niche products is still there when you're in a big A lot company? of it is about risk-taking and I think uh, in a more general way, uh, when we designed the curriculum, and, and just to be clear, Bradley and I had never taught a college course ever, so we were brand new at it. So they took um, a risk on you guys too. <laughs> it's true. Yes, uh, we, we actually told the class that they were beta, you know, right. and uh, <laughs> solicited a lot of feedback in real time, and actually yeah. adapted things quite a bit during the teaching of the course. And thanks to the students who are here, I see some yes, of your faces. I see a few. Um, yep. But as we designed the curriculum, and you know, again, it was about like, what do we wish we had known 25 years ago? Um, I would say a general topic that we kept going back to, which is not technical at all, was culture. Yeah. So we kicked off the class talking about innovators' dilemma, like why is it hard for big companies to innovate? And then we talked about what makes culture in a company, um, organizational structure issues. Uh, we did a class on culture change. And I think when you look at all of those cultural aspects, you eventually do get to risk management. And so, you know, Bradley and I have uh, worked together at Yahoo and. Um, have had varied experiences since then, but I think one problem that companies have is they say, I want to innovate, I want to try new things, and someone pitches a new thing and they get shot down immediately and uh, told, well, we can't do that new thing. Um, so we talked a lot about those dynamics and uh, we did one class on, on uh, doing your pitch and we even went over some research on how to, um, how to deal with common objections to new ideas in large organizations and things like that. So, it all does boil down to risk at the end, but it's the larger aspect is culture. And within Google or using some of the past experiences or those companies that you're fostering now, Bradley, from a, what, what's the trend, what's the theme within culture that can help how open yourself to these conversations, not shoot down the first, the first idea that comes your way and ensure that you can innovate in that respect? I think part of it is um, having a portfolio. When you think about risk, a company like Google, there are parts of Google that need to operate like a pacemaker, right? Mm -hmm. Like they're sort of the heartbeat of our business engines and those are places where you don't want to assume a lot of risk. And then there are other places where it's absolutely perfectly fine to invest some energy in, in that. What's harder is at the personal level, you know, sort of answering the question, should I join a startup or a big company? Which is a question many of our students approach me about out of school. And you know, Chad is a professional coach now. I'm uh, sort of an armchair mentor. Um, <laughs> but I think there's absolutely no right answer to that question. There's frameworks to think about the question. So you know, while you're early in your career, that might be a great time to take on a lot of risk. You know, you're going to learn a lot. If the startup is successful, you'll take on more responsibility. Might be a great time to take on that risk, you know. So over the window of your life, early might make sense. However, another approach is, you know, this is actually a good time to join a big company, get some training, see how yeah. it's done. A lot of the startup life is not so glamorous. They're gonna park you in a corner and say, do everything. And <laughs> that's the, you know, support you get at those startups. So there's no right answer. You know, there's only a framework to think about the trade-offs and a lifetime to sort of balance the, the needs of, of risk. So it's, it's interesting to think about risk at the personal level, you know, sort of the career risk you're taking anytime you take on a role or pitch an idea versus the companies that are also sort of have an arc and a lifespan. And um, it was sort of fascinating to think about that. Chad, talking about arcs and lifespans, I mean, the, the fact that you're teaching these, how up to date do these courses and these themes need to be, or how repetitive are they? How, how 
it, how are modern day problems, the you know, making sure that Google is innovative, is it the same sort of issue that a large company back in the 1940s would have had the problem of? One of the things that we learned, and again, part of the process for Bradley and me were taking things that we already knew intuitively and you know, knowing something intuitively is completely different than teaching it. Yes. So we had to do um, you know, our, our kind of own thinking and own research to try to articulate our thoughts in a very structured way. So one of the realizations I had, even though I've been you know, working in industry for you know, 25 years, is that the, um, the, the human aspect of companies is very linear in terms of progress and arguably no progress at all in the past 50 years. Organizations, people, culture, and technology is you know, exponential. And uh, you know, we looked back and, for example, Alfred Sloan, the, uh, the CEO of General Motors, um, I think in the 30s and 40s, wrote in his memoirs about how um, the battle between centralization and decentralization is kind of the core to good management. Uh, that was in the 1950s when he wrote that. Andy Grove wrote his book, High Output Management. Andy Grove, obviously the founder of Intel, he said the same thing. He wrote the book, I think, in 1980. He added a foreword in, I think, 1989 because he wanted to talk about the magic of email <laughs> um, and how that's going to affect the knowledge worker. Um, and then, you know, we looked at some cases like uh, Stephen Sanofsky, who's now at Andreessen Horowitz, um, writing about the, uh, the changes that happened at Microsoft mm. as Microsoft Word, Excel, um, the different products became Microsoft Office and a bundled suite. And I had noticed that um, actually this happened during the class. Uh, you know, Google made some announces, uh, announcements about Google Suite and how they were taking uh, Google Docs, et cetera. I can talk about Google. Bradley may or may not be able to. Um, <laughs> so uh, the long and short of it is, is that what we kind of discovered or rediscovered was that the human aspects, organization, culture, those things are essentially the same as they ever were. Probably. If I could find data back to the 1800s, the same thing. Um, even as we all communicate differently and technology is kind of going like this. And I think um, that's a really important thing, I think, to understand if you're a student who's graduating from a program like Cornell Tech and you're going into a, you know, into a big co and you're in a meeting and someone says, you know what, like, we have a functional organization, but if we make a divisional organization, that's going to solve all our problems. And anyone who's been in that situation knows that you just have a whole different set of problems. <laughs> and it took me 10 years to, to learn that. And I think for our students, hopefully they learn that um, in a few weeks. I think what's fascinating you bring up Microsoft there, it's actually Microsoft's going to be the front cover of our latest Business Week issue because it's going to be the miracle of Microsoft. Microsoft's now you know, the most valuable company. Once again, well, Apple and them are trying to buy it out, but hit $1 trillion market cap. It's amazing how they've managed to age and keep on invigorating themselves and innovating themselves. And Bradley, have you got any examples of companies that are doing it really right and any big companies that perhaps have been a case study of when they didn't do it right, they didn't manage to innovate from within? Well, as Chad said, as we referred back to some of the seminal literature, one of the ways we opened the course was with Innovator's Dilemma, Clay Christensen, which I think was written in the 80s. And the examples he's using are like, these massive conglomerates like General Electric or companies that built hydraulic tractors and things like that. But what is so fascinating is the more things change, the more they stay the same. The sort of principles of business and human nature and the way that even disruptive technology unfolds is like gravity. It's a law of nature. It doesn't change as we sort of accelerate down the technology curve. It's as true today. And so one thing that kept sort of surprising me, as Chad said, it was sort of like we'd been playing baseball for 20 years, but we hadn't really studied physiology or the physics mm -hmm. of baseball, and now we're sort of reading these manuals and like, that's why the curveball works, you know, sort of, it's sort of decoding it at a, at a meta level. And it was really both sort of gratifying and fulfilling to go back to the academic research and sort of see it through that lens over time. Now, to answer your question, there's examples like Apple, which is sort of the most amazing rebound mm. in history. Yeah. Microsoft, who everyone had counted out. What is also interesting is to see companies like Amazon and Google. Um, Amazon, Jeff Bezos is quoted as saying, you know, one day Amazon will die, you know. And he has a, a philosophy called zero day, 
Um, and zero day is really about resetting that clock every day. So yeah. it's sort of one way to cheat death is if you can sort of start the timer over every day. And that's about the attitude that employees bring to their job. You know, that's one way to stay a startup and not fall victim to some of the big company-itis that can lead to a demise. So, you know, even Google in its early days thought really hard about how do we build a sustainable company that isn't just for a decade or a couple, but can continue to innovate. And that's a lot what the founders are doing with X, thinking about not only what is the next digitization product, but thinking about things like transportation and life sciences and healthcare and um, mobility and telecommunications, like not just companies, but entire sectors and industries that stand to be transformed through, through data and information. Chad, what are the painful lessons perhaps that Yahoo had to learn? What, <laughs> the, the, what do oh they get gosh. wrong? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone gather around. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think, well, first of all, uh, I think Bradley, I think, would agree with me. Yahoo was one of the best experiences of my career. Um, the people we worked with were absolutely amazing. The, the leader of our division was Jeff Weiner, who's now the CEO of LinkedIn, I think one of the best CEOs around. There was a guy with a little photo sharing site named Stuart Butterfield, um, who's about to take Slack public or whatever you call a direct listing. He's about to list shares on the stock exchange. Uh, yeah, who else? Chi Lu. Chi Lu. Uh, Andrew yeah. Braccia, some yes. of the best VCs. Um, Rob Solomon, who's running GoFundMe, like the, yeah. the alumni network from the time yeah. that we were there has all gone on to do amazing, great things. Founding companies, yeah. being active in investing in venture, or on to executive roles leading companies around the world. So there wasn't yeah. a lack of innovators there. That's what? true. No, but I think that there are a couple things, and from, from my point of view, uh, and people forget this, so I joined, uh, I joined um, Yahoo in 2005, and incidentally, my last uh, interview was with Andrew Braccia, who was the largest investor in Slack, and we both worked together with him. And at the time, it was the search division, Google and Yahoo's search market share was equal. I think it was like 43% to 43%. Google was obviously like moving, moving much faster. So I think that there was a kind of external threat to Yahoo's business in the form of search. And if we go way back, there was a time when everyone thought the search game was over, <laughs> and you know, InfoSeq and AltaVista and all those people had won, so that's another lesson. Um, but I think that I learned a lot about competition there and you know, how, to, how to compete with a really fierce competitor. Everything from product releases, there was like a three weeks span, Bradley probably won't even remember where I was like product manager for Yahoo Maps and I think Google what? Maps. Yeah, <laughs> Google Maps had just come out and I felt like I was getting like thrown into a, a, a bed of piranhas, you know. Um, so I learned a lot about competition and Another thing, we talked about this in the class, is I learned, uh, we did a class that we called Hazards Ahead, where we taught like things that happen in the life of a company that may not be related to your line of, or what you're doing inside your team that can really affect you know, macro issues, micro issues. And one of them was like M&A deals. And so Microsoft mm -hmm. made an acquisition offer, a hostile acquisition offer to Yahoo in I think 2007. And so another thing I learned was that external forces like that Microsoft offer can really stop a company in its tracks. Um, and uh, you know, when I look back at the Yahoo experience, I think the most distracting thing that happened was that Microsoft acquisition offer, fighting that acquisition, kind of you know, quote fending it off. And uh, you know, I just remember in certain teams, people were stopping their work just to watch the news and like wait to see what's yeah. going to happen. So um, those were two things I learned. But I also learned a lot about really great management talent from people like Jeff Weiner. You know, the conversations I had with people like Stuart. I think Stuart's one of the great innovators um, you know, that, that we've ever seen. So it was an overall great experience. And the last thing I'll say on that is, um, and this has been a theme of the class that we didn't really plan, um, we've said to the students a lot that as you build out your career, the relationships that you create and make matter a lot, and yeah. they last for a really long time. And so even in my case, um, Katarina Fake, co-founder of Flickr, was a mm. friend of mine, um, a co-worker at Salon.com. It's actually how we met. It's how Katarina we met. introduced us. Katarina sold, and Stuart sold Flickr to Yahoo, and uh, Katarina uh, you know, used some of those proceeds to make an investment in a crafts marketplace called Etsy. 
<laughs> and Katarina introduced me to Etsy, um, and then you know the rest is history. So I think, wow, even in a tough environment like what we experienced at Yahoo, the the value of relationships is so so critical. Network is so crucial. We were just talking a bit about some of the M and A there, Yahoo buying mm -hmm. Flickr, and finally you, you were sort of managing some of the M and A there. What what are the lessons learned of making an acquisition work? Therefore, if you've got everyone looking at the latest news, hopefully Bloomberg Television, about you know how the deal's unraveling or unfolding and going well, how how do you ensure that you've got all of the people you're working with on board and understanding the vision? Well, I was really delighted that we did a class on M&A because I think it's an incredible tool. And I think it's also very misunderstood from the outside. Um, I think, first of all, it's important to acknowledge that it's really hard to get right. And I also think it's important to acknowledge that analysts will talk for 20 years about whether you got it right or not. That certain things like Instagram, for example, mm. um, one of the most successful acquisitions in the world, and you know we're all excited about it. But from a perspective, did they sell too early? Yeah. Would they have realized that potential as an independent company? Or on the other side of that, WhatsApp, you know, a 19 billion, 20x what Instagram was. Did they pay too much? Was it about taking out a competitor? Is it the new strategy for Facebook? This is still being written, right? Both founders gone now uh, um, on both companies. Um, you know, but does it matter? Because they sort of got what they needed out of it. So we actually deconstructed that and talked about a lot of case studies from uh, YouTube to Instagram to WhatsApp and sort of picked it apart and looked at the motivations for M&A, which can be everything from what we call aqua hires, talent acquisition, mm -hmm. to IP. It can be technical uh, infrastructure. It can be customers or demographics. It can be geographic. So you know, you see Uber buying a lot of um, local Kareem in Dubai and uh, geographic winners there for a winner-take-all market. They don't want to compete in Singapore, so they. Uh, do a deal with Grab and take an equity stake and things like that. So there can be many, many motivations for why an M&A deal transpires. And what success looks like has to be seen through the lens of like, why did this happen in the first place? It's interesting you bring up geographies there. How, Chad, difficult is it ensuring that you're learning about cultural diversity as well? And I mean, it's something I'm pretty sure you must be aware of. We are such an international cosmopolitan city in New York. I'm pretty yeah. sure you're those you're teaching are pretty cosmopolitan too. Absolutely, and I, I really want to emphasize that when you're teaching a class, and I would encourage anyone who has a chance to do it, um, it's almost a cliche that you learn as much as you teach, but take it from us, <laughs> like you really <laughs> learn a lot. And uh, you know, we, we're you know, 20, 25 years older than most of the students, and uh, you know, Bradley and I were both born here in the US, and um, the student body is incredibly diverse in terms of like gender and life experience, and and age, and so uh, we've learned a lot from that. And so we have a bunch of uh, corporate clients um, that we call big co-advisors who work with the teams, and it's everyone from uh, you know, Anheuser-Busch to Carnival Cruise Lines. So we've learned a lot about Carnival Beer Cruise Lines. Beer and cruising, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a nice combo. Um, and uh, we've learned a lot about that from the students. And then there are you know, businesses, take Anheuser-Busch for example, um, Neither Bradley nor I have run any company that's related to beer or alcohol, but one of the things I learned about innovation in a company like Anheuser-Busch is that because there's so many regulatory aspects, you're able to innovate in different ways in certain markets like outside the United States than you are inside the United States. So um, it's been an incredible learning experience, and uh, I think we have 18 companies that we're working with. Um, the students will publish uh, publicly kind of a one one or two sentence description of what they've done and that will be out I think in a couple weeks but uh, no it's just been incredible the diversity in the people companies the countries represented by the students has just been incredible I told a, a venture capital friend of mine recently that I felt a little bit I started to understand what it felt like to have a portfolio and to be able to see you know 18 companies at the same time it's, uh, it's really cool it's interesting that obviously Etsy I used very much when I was in the UK, but also used in the US. So it's a geographical large company. Google, in and of it, I mean, is, yeah, is geopolitics <laughs> in, in compass. But what about, you know, when you're doing Google entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. and for example, and launching that in different countries and different what are you learning about from cultural perspectives and how, how are you having to change and deliver in certain aspects? It's so important, and I think 
I think you're referring to something called Google for Entrepreneurs, uh, now rebranded as Google for Startups. One of the things we realized, and this again gets back to the premise of the course, is that talent is evenly distributed, but opportunity is not. And it's concentrated on Sand Hill Road, and that's a bug, and we need to sort of fix that together. Um, and one of the ways Google's doing that is working with partners in many parts of the world, but also standing up our own offices in Sao Paulo, Seoul, Tel Aviv, Warsaw, London, which are local hubs. And it's sort of like a we work, except you don't pay. We invite the entrepreneurs in, they meet each other, they gather there, we run programs. And it is exactly as you said, it's sort of a balance between taking the know-how and opportunity that we have, but also doing an exchange and doing a lot of listening to be appropriate to that particular community. Because the situation in Seoul on the ground in terms of what it means to be an entrepreneur, the cultural opportunities for entrepreneurs, the liquidity options for successful startups is very different than Silicon Valley or Warsaw. Mm. And so it's sort of a dialogue. We're learning as much as we're teaching there but it's really important to be on the ground in those places. And again, moving from the macro level to the personal level, one of the things I did at the end of last year was join the board of Singtel, Singapore Telecom, specifically to get more uh, international experience. And that's an incredible company that has a woman CEO, woman CFO, many women on the board. And uh, I've learned an incredible amount already in one quarter of board service about Southeast Asia, telco, and innovation in big companies. Chad, let's talk about diversity in its many forms and guises, because you were just saying at the very start that basically human nature is con pretty consistent and isn't changing at all within corporate culture as well. Meanwhile, technology and innovation is, is hockey-sticking. Mm -hmm. If that's even a turn of phrase. Where, um, what, how are the companies, how are the new CEOs and the CTOs that you're advising, that you're mentoring, that you're coaching, how are you telling them to deliver on a daily basis? How would you be doing it mm -hmm. within Etsy? Because you did, you took yeah. it public. Uh, on a diversity standpoint, yeah. diversity and inclusion. Um, you know, I, so I, I coach uh, about 15 mostly CEOs at various stage companies. And one of the things I've noticed is that it is something, uh, and let me explain coaching. I'm basically a you know, confidential advisor for the CEOs and a few CTOs. And they, they speak to me in their kind of their rawest terms and kind of most intimate terms. And I'm, I'm very encouraged. I think most of the leaders that I speak with really care a lot about building more diverse teams. They see the correlation between team performance and diversity. And they also really care about providing more opportunity to people who maybe have not always had that opportunity. So I'm encouraged. I think if you like look at industry numbers, there's still a long way to go. But I kind of feel like my experiences as a coach is kind of a leading indicator, and a lot of the people I coach are pretty young, that um, diversity and inclusion actually is a high priority mm. um, for CEOs. Good. Chad, also, I mean, I just referenced there that you were there when, what, how big was Etsy when you started? Like 40 people. And when you left? A thousand. Yeah. And you took it public. Yeah. Now we are in the midst of, if I hear anyone else call it a stampede, a herd of <laughs> unicorns, I'm going to go mad. But talk to us about going public, about yeah. how a company makes that transition, how a big co ensures that it remains innovative when it mo moves itself to a public market, has more people to answer to. Yeah, and uh, this is something I actually learned from Jeff Weiner, LinkedIn, our, our former Yahoo boss. Um, you know, there's so much attention on IPOs. Like, everyone probably knows what you know, Lyft and Pinterest traded at on their first day, <laughs> but I doubt many people would know what their stock price was right now. And the reality, like having taken a company public and, you know, lived through the next two years of it, during, a, you know, frankly, like a very difficult time in a lot of ways, um, the, what Jeff said was that the IPO is like a wedding and running the company is like a marriage. <laughs> and we're having a lot of weddings right now. <laughs> We're all celebrating, um, but <laughs> unless you lift. It's going to be really, and I'm pulling for all the companies. I'm excited about a lot of the companies going out. But I think that there should be a feature a little bit like, uh, you know, we're in New York. The New York Times has obviously the wedding section, and everyone reads that, even if they won't admit it. Um, occasionally, <laughs> occasionally, they have like a check-in on marriages. Like, these people were in the vows section in, you know, 2008. Where are they in 2019? A good number of them are divorced. <laughs> And so I think um, to, to really stretch that metaphor really far, uh, it'll be really interesting to see like 
what the life of these companies are as a public company. Because one of the things that happens, you look at it in almost like a technical sense, the things like lockup expirations when the inside investors are able to sell. Mm. But what really happens in the first year or so of being a public company is your entire ownership base changes. So if you're owned by Excel and Union Square Ventures and Index Ventures, um, your stock ends up in the hands of you know, T. Rowe Price, Fidelity, some hedge funds that you've never heard of, <laughs> activist investors sometimes. So I think the important part for these IPO companies is where are they um, you know, probably two to three years after the IPO. So that's what I'll be watching. We'll be watching that. What about pre-IPO, Bradley, when you're, I mean, you, we mentioned it before, you made a fortuitous, maybe very thought through, calculated um, first money into Slack, which congratulations to you. And I mean, you believed in Stuart, but I what used is to feel sorry for Bradley because he put money into Stuart's company. <laughs> yeah. Before the pivot, I was like, oh. So the what story did he do there, right? the yeah. story there is Stuart is a dear friend and someone I tremendously respect. And at the time of this investment, um, he was building a gaming company. And this gaming company was somewhere between World of Warcraft and Fortnite. Um, and for four years, he um, banged his head with his amazingly talented team against this problem of building this multiplayer online game. And for four years, my friends were consoling me about the investment I made in this game. And uh, you know, the thesis I had was not about Slack or enterprise communication. It was really around my faith in Stuart. And um, I think I have excellent taste in friends, uh, is sort of the investment thesis there. Um, and uh, it really was fortuitous. They executed what I think is the you know, best pivot in history, where they basically recognized the game wasn't happening, but the internal communication tool that they had developed to develop the game, because they had developers in Vancouver and San Francisco and around the world, that was the product. And I think who really deserves credit there, uh, we've mentioned Excel a couple times. They're a VC where a friend of ours, Andrew Braccia, is today. Andrew not only made the first investment alongside me, he also continued to push money across the table to Stuart, even as the game looked more and more grim. Um, and he just said, keep going. And that is really smart money and smart investing, because now he is the single, Excel is the largest single shareholder in Slack. I think they own almost a quarter of that company today, which is uh, stunning. Um, so um, if I learned anything with Slack, um, it's uh, yes, invest in your friends, but invest in people, not necessarily business plans and ideas. Uh, from a personal standpoint, in terms of angel investing, I've run out of friends, basically. <laughs> so I've had to sort of expand my, my deal flow. <laughs> and um, actually leaning on a friend for that, Tony Fidel, the founder yeah. of Future Shape, is an old friend. And he has graciously invited me to participate in deals alongside them. So about half the investing I do now is with Tony, which I think is one of the most interesting and mission-oriented investors out there. They're not a VC, because really, Tony and I both are looking for opportunities to align interests with the money. So we sort of like to have a financial stake in the outcome. But what we're really looking for are founders and teams that are coachable, that where we have something to contribute as well as something to learn. And so the money is used as a way to sort of engage. Uh, but what's more exciting is the missions associated with the companies we're investing in and our ability and opportunity to help them. So it's sort of like teaching. You know, Chad at one end of the spectrum is doing a lot of coaching for people sort of mid-career or late career. We're teaching now at Cornell Tech, and that's given us an opportunity to get them almost before they start. And this is a way to sort of hit the middle of the curve and help people that are midway through the journey. So t talking of Tony Fidel, that's, again, using your network, network that you built in Silicon Valley. He of Apple fame is now based in Paris, right? Yes, Tony's So teams. let's talk interestingly about, therefore, where the hubs are. Because Tony's made a real stake in that he's believing in Europe to a certain extent, but he's also looking internationally. He's got out of the Silicon Valley, uh, you know, fist. How are you finding that, that you're looking for new opportunities? Are you looking geographically in different hubs? How, how does Silicon Valley compare to the rest? Actually, there was a Bloomberg article last week that uh, revealed Tony is based in Paris, but he lives in Bali. <laughs> because why not? 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but he's really, and Future Shape is really a global team. It's some of the best people Tony has worked with, and a lot of the communication happens over electronic means. Mm. Um, and it turns out. Do um, you use Slack? We, I, yes, we use <laughs> Slack. And uh, what's important is, again, the opportunity is uh, not evenly distributed. And part of what we're doing is. Uh, finding the talent out there where it lives, whether it's in Southeast Asia or whether it's in a research university in Europe or Africa, uh, there's talent everywhere. And I think Tony made a statement when he picked up and left Silicon Valley and moved to Paris about the fact that he was taking that know-how and opportunity along with him mm. so that it could reach people wherever they lived. And to some degree, I, I mean, I have to add that what we're doing and why we're doing at Cornell Tech relates to New York City as a tech yeah. hub. And, you know, when I came to New York in 2008, there were obviously a lot of uh, companies. There was kind of the, the double-click crew and you know many companies that started here. But coming from Silicon Valley, New York, whether it was venture capital or even educational institutions, was not a Silicon Valley. And so I think what's happened in, in my 11 years here um, in New York is um, you know all the we pitched our Series F at Etsy. All the West Coast venture firms, um, from Kleiner Perkins on down, like came to New York to talk to us. Like we didn't go down Sand Hill Road. Um, they came to us to Washington Street in Brooklyn, New York. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the so the VC is really built up. I think the talent is just exploding. I'm seeing more and more people. When I moved here in 2008, New York was more expensive than San Francisco. You can actually pitch people now and say it's cheaper to live in New York than San Francisco. <laughs> um, and now I think Cornell Tech is kind of, in my mind, like the final puzzle piece of you know the, the academic institution that's extremely forward-looking. Um, in some ways, it, it's the best of both worlds. It has all of the, the sort of heft and tradition of Cornell, but all the, the benefit of being an entirely new campus um, in one of the densest cities in the world. So I think the combination of talent, VC, and uh, educational institution has really all come together in New York in the past few years. And a bunch of companies are exiting. Yeah. You know, a, a New York tech company exiting used to be big news for the year. And I think, for the most part, everyone's lost count. It's just kind of a normal thing now. I wanted to just uh, really chime in on Cornell Tech, because people don't realize it is literally right over there. The 59th Street Bridge will, will take you over. It's one subway stop on the F train, or you can take the tram if you want the scenic view. Mm. Um, but I think it's an under-celebrated asset that really hasn't been fully discovered yet. I think part of it from California, uh, the history there is that Stanford was in a battle with Cornell to sort of get that. So you're dead to us. We lost that battle. Um, <laughs> and, but I think even here in New York, I'm surprised by the number of people who haven't made it out to Roosevelt Island. They're like, Rikers, Roosevelt, what, where is that? Yeah. Um, and it is a gleaming, unbelievable campus, and more important than the facility, which is just state of the art and incredibly eco-conscious and you know, really magnificent in its own right, the staff that has been assembled there, the level of the faculty and the students you're recruiting, it's got all the ingredients for a world-class institution and I think just needs to be celebrated a little bit more than I've, I've seen. So happy to be up here driving awareness you know, in this panel. And yeah. I know Bloomberg's very, very happy to be so associated with it and giving money towards it. But let's get it to the audience now, because we already a hand is shut up. We've got two microphones which are going to come and roam around. We'd like you to just say who you are and, um, and what your question is. And please make it a, a question rather than a point. Have we got any microphones? Yes, just over there at the back. I'm Andrew Broadbent with Bad Media. This is for Bradley. Um, obviously, Google's had so many home runs, but they've also had like products that don't work out, like Gmail Inbox or Google Plus. How does Google decide, you know, when to pull a plug on a particular project? Like, is there math to it or whatever, like a framework? It's super complicated, and it's part of what we talk about in the class because, you know. Startups, starting is fun. You know, you know, it's sort of like uh, Lake Wobegon, where every kid is above average, or you know, we have a generation of leaders, but nobody wants to follow. In addition to starting things, you have to know how to sustain them, to grow them, and sometimes when to stop doing them, when to sort of call it and turn it off. And 
One of the problems is that at Google, we have a name for products that achieve 20 million users. We call those failures. Um, <laughs> you know, and wow. that's a bad joke, and I don't mean to be flip about it, but the truth is to move the needle and to matter at Google and to get the attention a product deserves, the bar is very, very high indeed. And so part of what we're doing, and part of Area 120 was to sort of create a safer place where we could do this kind of experiment experimentation with the right expectation setting so that we didn't have to sort of launch things and then unlaunch them with the Google brand and all the fanfare associated with it. But is there a way to get some of those learnings and see if things take off organically or not in ways that are safer and quieter? Um, but it's no fun shutting down products because even the products that aren't working have a devoted base of users who've invested time and energy. And the best we can offer them is the responsible wind down, giving them plenty of notice, giving them all the takeout options, which Google has been really good about for many, many years. For literally a decade, we've had what we call uh, takeout, which is sort of pull a handle, your data is yours, it gets exported, all of those things. So we try to do that in the most responsible way that we know how to do. Uh, it's not a fun moment, but as we taught in the course, failure is part of risk. And being able to accommodate that failure harvest what you can and move on is, is very much part of the journey. What we harvested from Google+, and this was very important to me personally, is Google Photos. So one of the great successes, I think it will be the fastest growing product in Google history to reach a billion users, is Google Photos. And a lot of the technology and know-how was uh, dormant in that product and we had to reshape it and reform it and relaunch it. Uh, but again, that's the goal, is to sort of harvest what you can and then be compassionate and respectful in terms of the wind down. Great question. Next panel, yeah, we have a gentleman at the front. Thank you guys for, for joining us today. Um, I was curious to hear about with- Sorry, your name and- Oh, right, right. My name's Sean Bramson. Uh, I'm curious to hear about uh, particularly when creating this course, you, you both, of course, are, are, let's say, at the top of the organizational charts. What advice have you given to the students who are now going to join, possibly at the mid and lower tiers of that, uh, of that chart? One bit of advice that um, really I learned from my wife, who's uh, also been an executive at Netscape, Yahoo, Google, and is now a venture capitalist at Coastal Ventures, is really about you work for a boss, not a company. And so the local climate, especially if you join some place like Google, anyone who says this is what Google is like is not at Google because the hardware division is different than YouTube, is different than Nest, is different than ads, is different than search. All of these are sort of microclimates. And the environment gets down to who are you working for and who's your boss. And so I think it's important to look at the company, and that, to a degree, is important. But more important, are you working for someone directly, that one layer on the org chart, who supports you, who you can learn from, who you respect? Um, and is that sort of a, in the locality of that position, is it, a, is it a good environment for you to learn and grow? And part of what we encourage people to do is keep that curious growth mindset. The minute you're dreading Monday, or no longer stretching or learning is a good moment to reflect on whether you need to do something else either at that company or outside of that company. So trying to keep that trajectory of self-growth is like one of the things to optimize for. Yeah. I would, and I would add to that um, uh, on a very specific, specific level and like working for the person, um, this was something I'd never articulated before, but for, for some reason I look back on my career and I realize that every job I'd ever had I ended up like in the CEO's office for one reason or another. Um, sometimes good, sometimes not. <laughs> but I developed relationships with CEOs, and like you know, I grew up in Eastern North Carolina. I didn't have any like family connections or anything. It just kind of happened organically. And I realized that what I had done in each of those situations that I'd really listened closely to what the CEO said, whether it was in public or in meetings and that kind of thing. And I thought about what the CEO's problems were. And I organized my work, not in a sort of brown-nosing sort of way, but like so that I could do my part to help solve the CEO's problems. And so to make it really practical, um, I mentioned Carnival Cruise Lines is one of the advisor companies. I was really curious about Carnival Cruise Lines. Like, I don't know anything about that business. Lots of big, expensive ships. And so one of the things I talked about in class was um, 
to be really curious about the CEOs of companies. So I found, um, and I'm, unfortunately I'm blanking on his name, but I found the, the CEO of uh, Carnival Cruise Lines did a podcast with a Slate podcast, which is really great, called Who Makes This? And they interview like the leaders of different organizations. I think his name is Donald Arnold. And I listened to that podcast on the way to teach the class one day. And uh, he talked about all the things that you would think about in a Carnival Cruise Lines business. But one of the questions was, if you woke up one day and you could not do business, you couldn't do anything related to business, what would you do? And I could tell it was a question he'd never been asked before. And he started talking about how he, want, he would be a poet and he would write poetry, which is the last thing you would expect. <laughs> um, have any CEOs said they yeah. want to be a poet on Bloomberg? Not yet. <laughs> okay. I live um, in hope. <laughs> and so how do you translate that into something real? You know, if I was in that situation and I suddenly found myself in the elevator with that CEO and I was like, what do I say to what CEO? I would say, I, I listened to your podcast and heard that you would write poetry if you could. And I know for sure that that would engage the CEO. Mm. So those are the kinds of things we talk about. But one of the things he talked about was the supply chain that they had and how they had really distributed purchasing and they centralized all of their arugula purchasing because they were one of the biggest purchasers of arugula. And so if you don't want to ask the CEO or, you know, about his poetry, you can say, hey, I heard that we're trying to centralize our arugula purchasing and I had this idea. <laughs> and I, I guarantee you, like any CEO would be like, wow, I want to talk to this person. <laughs> um, so those are the kinds of things that that we try to teach. Very high level, you know, Alfred Sloan, General Motors, centralization, decentralization, but also talk about arugula and poetry in the elevator with your CEO. Great points. Have we got the microphone? I think we've got a question just here at the front. Thank you very much. Hi, thanks for coming. I'm Sophia and I work at City Ventures. My question is about um, innovation teams within large organizations that are developing new products. And if you've seen best practices for how connected they should be to the core business, specifically regarding like marketing operations, product development. Yeah, I've thought a lot about that. And I think the answer is as connected as they need to be and no more. I hope that's helpful. No, I'm sure it's not. Um, <laughs> I think on the one hand, the entire purpose is to create a different process and to get away from whatever process is creating friction or slowing you down and improve upon that. However, you're sort of building for a customer of one. Ultimately, the spin in, we, get, we did a class on spinning in, which is how does one reintegrate these products back into the company? And um, a couple of, and it will vary dramatically company to company, but a couple of um, things I've seen uh, successfully implemented. One thing we've done at Google with Area 120 is this is actually um, run by the same team that does corporate M&A. So there was an acknowledgement that we've gotten very good at reaching outside of the company, bringing in something, whether it's YouTube or Waze or whatever, and uh, integrating them in. What if we use that same well-worn process to take things and spin them in and sort of treated them like outsiders but put them on the same rails to integrate in with the business units? So that was sort of one rule of thumb about how we could sort of take these things and make sure we harvest them so that they're not just sort of growing out there in isolation but never realized but actually fold into the mainline business. And this brings me to a funny anecdote which is really the uh, Xerox Park is sort of the canonical example of an incubator gone wrong. A lot of people invoke it because they invented so many things. They invented the laser printer and the graphical user interface and the mouse and all of these things. And it's true that they didn't realize, Xerox Inc. didn't realize all of the inventions that were made there. But what is less well known is just the patent portfolio they created on laser printers was a 200x return on investment for the entirety of Xerox Park, um, which I'll take any day of the week if you got, have a 200x invest, investment, see me afterwards. Um, so by that lens, it was a tremendous success. You know? So it's, again, very complicated to sort of assess how these incubators work. Um, and in hindsight, even in hindsight, it's, it's hard to understand whether they were successful or not. But I do think it's important not only to innovate, but to harvest those innovations. So. Another just trick we've done is 
take people who are running business units and get them invested with skin in the game early as advisors or mentors or board members so that they're not blindsided like you're not going to believe what I built for you. You know, you don't want to approach them three years after your investment and sort of say, look at this. You want to make sure that you're aiming for something that they're going to want and support and need. So early engagement. Fix an arugula issue. Exactly. <laughs> um, we have a question just here at the front. Hi. I was wondering at what point money finance comes into the discussion. Because mean, meaning even for a company like Google, to build dozens of Area 120 co-working spaces costs money. And that's money that's against other things that would also like to have funding. So at what point does finance or money come into the discussion when you're trying to get resources for innovation or innovation hubs or something like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we there were financial pieces of the whole curriculum that we taught that um, for example uh, we talked about um, valuation and such with uh, M&A deals which isn't maybe exactly what you're talking about but I think in that scenario you have to decide like how much of our corporate assets our corporate body are we willing to invest in kind of an outside entity um, Bradley's point about building for you know a uh, you know, a product at Google at 20 million users being a failure. I think every company has that kind of calculation. So I think what we did um, starting off was to talk about how difficult it is for large companies with successful business lines that generate, you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars in revenue to carve off even a little bit for, um, you know, an innovation lab or something like that. But Well, it sounds very trite, and most of these things that we're teaching do <laughs> by the time you sort of say them. But it's like a billboard that says the only thing more expensive than an education is no education. Yeah. And in some ways, the only thing more expensive than innovation is no innovation. So it's very much a portfolio approach. I don't think a 10-person startup can afford to stand up a lab and you know, have an international strategy around that. I think a company that's operating at Google scale can barely afford not to. Um, so it's partly contextual depending on uh, the stage of the company. But you know, there's a responsible um, investment that you have to make just as you're balancing a personal portfolio and you have some in stocks and some in bonds and diversify it. I think in the same way, companies need to think about their innovation portfolio, um, innovating against existing large products trying new markets, trying new domains. And um, you know, you'll see companies like Google and uh, Apple and Amazon uh, trying lots of things. And um, the important thing is to do that in a responsible way and then again to harvest the things that are working and double down. And I, and I would add, and this is incredibly important, people talk about the Innovator's Dilemma book a lot because it, it was coined the idea of disruptive technology. And the thesis of that book is not, you know, you can get disrupted. Um, that's part of it. But the real thesis is that well-managed companies get disrupted. And so the dynamics are, if you're managing purely financially, it almost never makes sense to, if you have a $100 million revenue line, to invest in something that's only going to generate a million dollars or $100,000 in the first year. And so I think that the larger message is to fight the very smart business impulse to not invest because the new thing isn't big enough. And you know, having dealt with that even as a company that was you know, small relative to Google at Etsy, it's incredibly difficult in the boardroom, in the executive room, to argue when you have to hit revenue numbers that you want to spend something on something that's uncertain and has a 1 in 10 chance of being big and a 9 in 10 chance of being zero. Um, so I think it's more more art than science. And you see this even, we talked about Mark Zuckerberg, um, and this was all reported in the Wall Street Journal, how Mark Zuckerberg negotiated with Kevin Systrom on the value of Instagram. You know, if you go to business school, you'll learn how to do things like discounted cash flow models and revenue multiples and all that kind of stuff. And it looks very scientific, but when you look at a real deal, it didn't make any sense at all. It wasn't like mathematical. It was all about faith on both sides that something was going to happen in a few years. So I think 
we didn't really state this as a theme in the course, but I think so much of business, the math doesn't work. It's like a lot of people having the same vision and believing over the course of three years, five years, seven years, that something is gonna happen. Great perspective, yes. And then straight up here. Hello, I'm Kara. Um, I guess it's a follow-up to his question, but he, you mentioned that uh, in selecting work, you give the advice to look at the microculture of the boss and what's created within it. I'm also curious what advice you give in terms of changing culture and what you've tried to foster in the roles that you guys have had. I, I could start. I'm sure we have a lot to say. Um, we, uh, I wish I could recall the name, but we looked at some research about company cultures and they plotted the, uh, it was in HBR, cultures in four different quadrant, quadrants. And I don't remember the axes, but on the top right quadrant was Whole Foods, like pre-Amazon Whole Foods. And it's like a friendly culture, a communal culture. And I visited them when I was CEO of Etsy back in 2012 and I got to see that firsthand. On the opposite end of the spectrum, was uh, the company Huawei, I think I'm saying it correctly, and their culture was described as like, kind of eat what you kill, everyone is a wolf, <laughs> like all this kind of stuff. And so what we advise students, and I advise um, you know, people I know and people ask me for advice, is that um, every, everyone's personality uh, needs to match to the personality of the company. So if you're very communal and collaborative and consensus driven, you're not gonna work well in the eat what you kill wolf uh, culture, but um, you may work well in a place like, you know, like a Whole Foods. So um, it's really important to match, especially for the students in our class who are looking for, um, looking for jobs sometimes for the first time, often for the first time, to match your personality to the personality of the company. And just as a quick side note, I think this makes Satya Nadella's turnaround of Microsoft even more remarkable because, um, and we did a case study on that, I mean, his, one of his first acts was to ask his executive team to read the book, Nonviolent Communication. And this was a company that was renowned for, you know, Violent chair throwing and screaming <laughs> and like that kind of stuff. So um, I'm just absolutely amazed at that transformation. I think it's gonna go down as maybe the biggest business transformation in the history of the world. Do you have anything to add on? No, that was beautifully said. Yeah. <laughs> Is there one last question? We only have two minutes. Well, I've got a couple then, just to wrap these things up. I want to ask generally about, therefore, both of you, what you're most optimistic about in terms of big companies innovating. When we see a whole host of new IPOs, new, everyone talking about the startup culture, everyone investing now, I mean, you've done it very well yourself, but what are you most optimistic about big companies being able to continue to innovate, Chad? Sure. Um, you know, companies are really made up of people in the end. And, um, you know, I think that uh, in, in the culture, we, we read a lot of things about like, you know, millennials and Gen Z and all these things and avocado toast and like all this kind of stuff. Um, I think a lot of that is really misguided. And the thing that I'm most impressed with um, is the, the drive and ambition of kind of the next couple of generations that are coming up and um, the desire for companies that are both profitable and socially just, or more socially just. Um, you know, I think one reason, for example, Microsoft transformation has gone so well is I think someone like Satya Nadella sees that we're moving into more collaborative, um, you know, high communication, good communication kind of culture. So I'm, I'm really excited and optimistic about the next generation building technology in a way that's, um, really focused on not just building software, building software that actually works for people and works for society. And there's a sincere belief, I think, in the next, or conviction in the next couple of generations um, that are coming up, so please save us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll just add the geographic component to that, that I think um, it's not just about the next generation, but I think the world has been denied an opportunity to contribute at a level that it deserves. You know, it's been a privileged few who've had access to capital and access to opportunity, and that needs to change because it's part of the dysfunction that has led to some of the problems we're experiencing now. So I think as the leveling happens and that opportunity is made more available to everyone, uh, I'm a techno-optimist, or just generally an optimist, that 
I think that will create uh, a better world for all of us. Um, and I think we're only a few steps into that journey. It's not just Amazon Web Services and Google Cloud that make it easy to build your startup. There's so many other pieces of the puzzle that need to be shared. And um, you know we're playing our small part. You've played a wonderful part today, both of you. We thank you so much for thank giving you. us a free lecture. Um, we want to thank Chad Dickerson and Bradley Helrowitz. Thank you very much indeed. Please give it thank up you. for them. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And be sure to follow Tech at Bloomberg on Twitter, like Cornell Tech at Bloomberg on Facebook, or visit the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast homepage to sign up for invites to future events in this series. You can also watch any of the interviews from this event series on Inside Bloomberg on YouTube.